The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Morning. All right. Um, you know, I, I, get, I get that not everyone aspires uh, to do great things. Not everyone is motivated by a, a big golden life. Not everyone has a bucket list, whether it's a mental bucket list or an actual written one of things that they want to do before they die. Not, not everybody is, is like that, um, but you should be that kind of person. You should be. And I don't want to violate, I don't, I don't want you to hear me saying that, that I want you to violate the kind of person that God made you, how he wired you, how he fits you. I, I understand if you're more of a play it safe, home body type person. My uh, point is simply this. Uh, whether you're a leader or an entrepreneur or have an adventurous spirit, if I can put it that way, whether you're that kind of person or not, what you are, and I'm speaking to these people in particular, what you are is a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should have it in you, no matter the kind of person you think you are, you should have it in you to do something great for God. All of us should have that. And we're going to actually read today about a man who did just such a thing. His name is Nehemiah. We're in the first chapter of the book that bears his name. And he was an official in the court of the king of the Persian Empire. And he was in that position at a time when things were very tough for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. They were actually in a very desperate state. And he might not at first glance seemed like the kind of person that God might use positioned in the court of the king, uh, so to speak. He might not have seemed like a man who even had high aspirations for himself. Uh, Yet what we see in this this opening chapter, and and certainly throughout the book, we're only going to look at chapter one, what we see is a determination that led him to do something pretty great for God, to, to have God use him to do something pretty pretty awesome for God and his people. And, and as we continue the series that we're in is called Make Ready, and as we continue to make ready for whatever it is God has for us this year, whether as individuals or as families or as a church, whatever God has for us, that we're going to see that a focused determination is a pretty critical quality to have as we make ready for that in our lives. It's something God intends for us all to have, no matter the kind of person we are we should be determined to let God do something great through us. So let's uh, pray together, and then we'll begin working through Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's pray. Uh, Father, bless this uh, time again as we uh, get your word open in front of us. And God, we would pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us. Make us uh, the people that you want us to be so that we might be used by you to do great things. Uh, for you, for your name, for the renown of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you're determined to have God do great things uh, through you, then you'll need to 
Uh, first of all, show compassion uh, for those around you. Show some compassion for those around you. And I, I do want you to hear that this um, is not, what I'm preaching today is not a methodology. It's not um, three ways to be a more determined person. I'm not trying to just preach a character quality at you and have some kind of like moral lesson around all of this. Uh, this really gets to, the reason why it's not a technique with three just do this um, um, uh, uh, tenants, it's, it's really about the heart. The first place we go is about our hearts. This needs to flow from what we actually believe and what we actually feel. And we see in chapter uh, one, the first three verses, that this is a grave situation. And how Nehemiah really feels about it. I was beginning reading now the first verse. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Uh, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. The text tells us, and this is a phrase we'll come back to a few times uh, through the message, that the people in the land were in great, you see it there, in great trouble and shame. Now, to set up a little bit of the historical background, the children of Israel had been kind of an independent country, uh, but then um, uh, generations before, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, had sent his armies through, and they had conquered Jerusalem and Judah, and had carried away the best of the people into exile, and now for decades and decades and decades, the people had been in Babylon, and then the Medo-Persians came in, conquered the Babylonians, and so now, the known world, that part of the world, was under uh, the power and control of the Persian Empire. There had been a releasing of some of the exiles to actually go back to the land and begin to resettle it. And prior to Nehemiah chapter 1, in fact, Ezra records for us that the people had been able to rebuild the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And so the worship had been reestablished, and there were people there who were Jews and who were beginning to reestablish some of the normal patterns of life for Jewish people, but the wall had not yet been rebuilt. Now, why is that such a big deal? We don't have a wall around Barry. We don't really need walls uh, today. There aren't many walled cities being built. But back in that day, it was so important to have a wall. And the first thing that we think of, of course, is protection. That we, would, that we would have some protection around us uh, from thieves coming in, from invading armies, from, from, from marauders. And, and, um, and so in that respect, that's true, that there was a safety aspect to this. And at dusk, the gates would be closed and you couldn't get in after the gates were closed. No matter what, you'd spend the night outside the city. But something we don't think very much about is that the walls also provided a sense of community, an identity of who they actually were. Because before those gates were closed at the end of the day, it was really a marker of whether or not you belonged in the city or outside of it. 
when the gates were closed, those that were in the city either belonged there, they were part of the city, or they were guests of those who were in the city and were welcomed there. But once the gates were closed, if you were outside, you just didn't belong there. You weren't part of the community that was the city of Jerusalem. And so you can see why it's not only that they're in great trouble, but they're in great trouble and, and shame. Every other city had walls. Every other city had a way of protecting itself. Every other city had a way of identifying who was in and who was out. But not Jerusalem. It was weak and it was vulnerable. It was in great trouble and shame. And so notice what Nehemiah says. As soon as I heard these words, this is verse 4, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I mean, he cared. He felt very deeply about this. And any action that he was going to take, and you know the rest of the book, if you know the rest of the story, you know he takes very decisive action, and he's very determined to do something. But any action that he would take of necessity was now going to flow from a heart of compassion for the people. He really cared about this. He cared about his city. He cared about his people. And he cared that they were in such a desperate state. I was reminded of this this week, this, you know, com the compassion that has to be there. Before we do anything, it needs to be rooted in compassion. And I was reminded of that this week. I read this article. Um, ESPN put out a feature on Tiger Woods called The Secret History of Tiger Woods. How many people read that article this week? Just raise your hands. Only about six or seven of you. And I would really commend it to you. You don't need to be a golf fan to read it. And in fact, it has very little to do with golf and more about the man. And, um, and as I read uh, this article... Um, I realized that there was a part of Tiger Woods, and this is all, you know, true for any of us really in some sense, but there was a very public persona, there was a part of Tiger that we all knew. And the thing that was remarkable about his ascendancy to, to dominate the golf world, which happened so quickly, was that even people, tell me if this isn't true, even people who weren't golf fans all of a sudden were enamored by Tiger Woods and would find themselves watching golf on Sunday afternoons because Tiger was playing. Because it was Tiger and a massive gap and then everyone else in the world. And he dominated in the number one position for so many years, dominating every tournament and winning major after major. That's the public part that we knew. We also knew, if we were aware, we also knew that he had a very close relationship with his father. That it was very close, but it was also very, very complicated relationship. It was a complex relationship with his father. And when his dad died, Again, if you know anything about this, when his dad died, it began a downward spiral and his life began to just come unraveled. And uh, we know about the night, if you've read anything about this, that he crashed his SUV. And we know all the revelations that came out in the wake of that and the days and weeks that followed of the multiple affairs and a woman at every tournament. We know how that destroyed his marriage and we know that in very short order, the decline became complete. And Tiger no longer dominated golf, and golfer after golfer bypassed him in the world rankings. So that at this moment right now, Tiger is ranked, it's almost unbelievable, but Tiger is ranked 486th in the world. That's the part that we know that you can just kind of read about in the papers. And what we didn't see really, and this is what comes out in the article, is a case study in the tortured life. He was a mess. 
we see, and we can take the phrase from Nehemiah 1 and we can apply it to Tiger. What we see is great trouble and shame in Tiger's life. Trouble and shame that he continues to bear to this day. And I find myself like a lot of you with an attitude toward him that kind of felt like he got what he deserved. I was dismissive of Tiger Woods. Seeing him as a man who was uh, privileged and more than a little bit proud of himself. Who cheated on his wife and got what he deserved. But now after reading the article, this man who seems so invincible in some ways really is really quite frail. And I understand his bad decisions way better now. I know how he got there. And it's curious that I found in the reading of the article, and I've talked to many others who love Jesus who have read the article already, and we all kind of feel the same way. I feel sorry for him now. I, I just found myself having compassion toward him. And, and, and the thing is, I'm, I'm not likely to ever minister to Tiger Woods, not that he would ever, ever even welcome that, he has other followers of Jesus who are much closer to him in his life, and I'm sure they've tried. But it was, a, it was a reminder to me of how essential compassion is as a starting point for everything that I do. And I, don't, I, I think you'd be okay with me confessing to you that it's really easy for those of us who are pastors and, and on the staff of the church and even elders to begin to look at this as being just kind of a job. That you do it year after year, and, and, and you care for people, and... and and it can just become, this is what I do on Tuesdays, and this is what I do on Wednesdays, and this is what I do on Thursdays. And when I get together with the folks on the weekend, I need to preach the word to them, and then I turn that switch off and do something else, and it just becomes a list of things that I do. I don't think, by the way, that that's any different for any of you who are small group leaders or coaches or, 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 or teachers in Harvest Kids or Awana leaders. I, I don't think that's different for any of us. We can just look at it as being a thing that I do. But I see here that it needs to be rooted in compassion. That there has to be at the starting point a deep caring and love that why I'm doing this is because I see the great trouble and the shame that people are in and I believe that I have something to offer them that will help lift them out of that. And we believe that God is making us ready for something big here at Harvest. We believe that with all of our hearts. We've invested a lot in that thought, in fact. We suspect, more than suspect really, that it has something to do with 7 George Street. That while he may want to do something in our, our lives individually, and we believe that, and in our families, that, that corporately, as a church family, God is doing something, and we believe it's the acquisition of this building. But unless our determination is rooted in compassion, our reason for acquiring this building, unless it's compassion, then we might as well not expend all the money and all of the effort and all of the time in doing it. Compassion needs to be our primary motivation. See, we need to believe that this facility, this, this bricks and mortar, 
could become a center of compassion, a place where those who are in great trouble and shame, those who are hurting, can actually find the help through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then let's do it. Let's get to it. Let's make it happen. Because this is exactly the way Jesus approached his ministry. It was entirely about his compassion for us. I tracked this uh, through the gospels, through the word of God, and I found that often before Jesus taught or before he fed the 4,000 or before he fed the 5,000 or before he healed someone or before he raised uh, the widow's son from the dead, the Bible tells us repeatedly that Jesus was moved with compassion. And that's why he healed. That's why he raised the dead. That's why he fed the people who were hungry among the multitudes. That's why he taught them. He had compassion for them. So much compassion, in fact, in fact that it compelled him to go to the cross for us. His love so profound and so deep knowing the plight that we were in. In fact, at one point he said he was giving his life for those that he saw as, this is in Matthew 9, uh, 20, uh, Matthew 9, 36, those who were harassed and helpless. To me, that's just another phrase for in great trouble and shame. And he sacrificed himself on the cross, compelled by his compassion. So if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to live in the spirit of Nehemiah, it starts with compassion. And so 7 George Street will be a building dedicated to the making of disciples. It'll be dedicated to the soul care of those who love him, his people. It will be dedicated to the advocacy of those who live on the margins of our society. It will be an outreach place for those who are still in darkness. And so let's be determined with compassion as the starting point to do something great for God. And if the compassion is there, then notice this, uh, secondly, you'll want to align your efforts with what God is doing. Align your, you, you got, it's here, I want to do something, now what's the thing I have to do? I want to do the thing that God wants me to do. In fact, it isn't so much me doing something great for God. It's God doing something great through me. You see the difference. And so how do I get aligned with God? I make a little list here. Primary ways that we align with God's will. One of the primary ways, of course, is what we're doing right now. It's the word of God. Reading it, sitting under the teaching of it, studying it, believing it, doing it. Okay, if I'm, if I'm in the word of God increasingly I'm going to be aligned with his purposes in my life. A few minutes ago, we worshiped God and we sang these songs that are consistent with what we understand about God from his word. And we sang these songs in worship to him, rehearsing back to him the things that we know to be true. That's an alignment. When we worship God, we're aligning ourselves. No other name. By the way, the number one name that we put in front of God is what? Our own name. I often put Todd in front of Jesus. No other name. I'm aligning myself 
with the Lord. So word is one way. The word is one way we align ourselves. Worship is another. Being in community is another. Just being here to get to today and being with one another and being in a small group and being in relationship with other people who love Jesus. And when I start to get out of alignment a little bit, hopefully I have some people in my life who are going to help bring me back into alignment with the Lord. And that's the beauty of what we do here together in community. It's what soul care is all about in our church. And then a fourth way, so that's word, worship, a community, and then what we see here in Nehemiah 1, prayer. A prayer is about aligning our efforts with what God is doing. And that's the first thing that Nehemiah does. You can't, you can't miss this. Again, uh, verse 4 continues. He says, I continued uh, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, he continued to do this, which tells me that this was already a pattern in his life. That he had the spiritual discipline of praying and fasting before the Lord. And when this need came to him and he felt compassion about it, he just continued to do what he had always done. But now it was a little more focused as he was thinking about this situation in Jerusalem. And if you know the rest of the narrative and how this all rolls out, before you get to chapter 2 where he has an opportunity to begin to enact his plan, many months pass between chapters 1 and 2 before anything can be done about it. Months and months and months pass where all all Nehemiah is doing is praying and thinking about what he's going to do next, what his plan is going to be. Before he ever gets to have a conversation with the king. Before the plan would ever be set in motion. He's fasting. He's praying. And we can't overestimate the essential nature of prayer. And sometimes we do. It's a little tag on. It's a little something we do on the side. And we don't recognize how integral it is to everything that we do. I love what Oswald Chambers, by the way, he's the author of My Utmost for His Highest, which is one of the most amazing devotionals ever. And Chambers said this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. A prayer is the greater work. A prayer isn't the thing that, I mean, we see this in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is praying. Well, of course he's praying. That's the first thing you do. You just pray and then you just go and work. But if you read the rest of Nehemiah, you see how many other times he comes back to prayer and you get a sense that the thing that's happening throughout the entire process of the rebuilding of the walls, prayer is saturating every moment of it. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He's aligning himself with God's priorities and he he sees this as the greater work. And so this this is the good news with what I started with, for those of you who don't have an adventurous spirit, who aren't like looking forward to climbing a mountain, you're not, uh, you're not really a person who travels the world, you're not a risk taker in any sense, but the way that you can be part of the greater work of God is simply by closing your door and getting alone and getting on your knees and pleading with God to do something awesome get aligned with his greater works as these are accomplished in the prayer closet on our knees no 
No greater battle has ever been waged in the history of warfare other than that which has been waged and is waged on our knees against the forces of darkness in this world. That's the greater work. We have said it this way many times around here. If we don't pray, nothing else matters. If we don't pray, nothing else matters. And so Nehemiah prays, verse 5, and I want to work through this. He prays from 5 through 11. And we're just going to pause along the way to kind of note there's a, there's a, a component of prayer here that's important. The way he's praying is important, so let's note these. Verse 5, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice he, he acknowledges God. He starts out by just worshiping God. God, you're awesome. You're amazing. Why would I pray to anyone else? Verse 6, he continues, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray now before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. And I love several things in this section. I love that he's bold enough to pray and, and, and ask for this. It's a pretty desperate situation, but he's bold enough to, to, to talk about it, but he's humble enough to continue to call himself your servant. Your servant, God, I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you want me to do. So there's lots of humility there, even with the boldness. He makes his request. He's willing to sacrifice and be tenacious in it. He's persevering in prayer. He says, I, I, I now pray uh, before you day and night. Day and night I'm praying. I haven't stopped praying all these months. I'm praying, praying, praying. Now listen, if you're going to pray to God and tell him that you're praying before him day and night, okay, he knows if you're lying. So like I... So if you're, I mean, if you're doing that, go ahead and say that. God, you know how I've been praying about this day and night. I mean, for sure, Nehemiah was praying before the Lord day and night, correct? Because he's not going to say that to God unless it's true. And, and so he's been persevering in his prayers, not assuming anything of God. Verse 6 continues, and into verse 7, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded before your servant Moses. The thing that's crazy about this is that he's confessing stuff that goes back literally hundreds of years. Not sins that he's committed, really. Not sins that his father or even maybe his grandfather had committed, but generations before, he's really, and if you get a little further into the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, you'll see that they're going to confess their sins going all the way back to Moses. And what I love about this is the personal pronoun that he uses is first person. He's using the we, he's using the I. And he's including himself in the, in, in the family of Israelites to say, this is our sin. I'm owning this. I'm not blaming previous generations. I'm owning my part in this. And this confession is so important. It's so important that we confess in our prayers to the Lord. Anything we've done, knowingly, unknowingly, God, hear my prayer. I know I'm unworthy. Forgive me for this. James would write later in the New Testament that it's, in, and this is in um, James 5.16, that the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous man, avails much. So Nehemiah wants to make sure his heart and the heart of the people is in the right place to even ask for any of this. So he confesses, he gets right with God. 
Verses 8 and 9, remember the word that you commanded your a servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will, and he's quoting here, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Several years ago, maybe some of you remember this, several years ago we studied in all of our small groups a book called Transforming Prayer by Daniel Henderson. And in that book, we were encouraged really just to do one thing, and that was pray the scriptures back to God. And you can be 100% certain that you are praying according to the will of God, that you are aligned with God, 100% certain, if you pray the scriptures back to him. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. That's why you see the quotes there. He's quoting the word of God back to the Lord, saying, I get why we went into exile, I get why you had to discipline us, but I know that you made a promise in your word that no matter where the people were, you were gonna bring them back together. Nehemiah's praying that back to the Lord and claiming it. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And he rightly reminds God that these are his covenant people and of what he's done for them in the past. And that's a, that's, I mean, top to bottom, that's a great pattern for prayer. With every word, he was aligning himself with the Lord. And, and this, it's not like so many of our prayers, this shopping list, God, I need this, God, I need this, God, I need this, help this, help this, do this. So often that's what our prayers are like and we get through the little list and we give ourselves a devotional check mark for the day and I did my devotions, I prayed to God today. But it was all what I want and we don't have any real certainty that we prayed things that he would want for us. But here's Nehemiah seeking God's will. And I have echoes as I read this whole thing and I didn't, Study it out in this way, but I have echoes of the Lord's prayer throughout this entire prayer of Nehemiah. And I think about that one line. Maybe you could just pray with me right now. Thy will be done on as it is in heaven. Alignment. Doing God's will. Seeing all of this his way. And this is super important to us as a church, obviously. The essential nature of prayer is critical to everything that we do. And our third pillar is believing firmly in the power of prayer. And there's so many different ways that we can be engaged in praying here at Harvest. And uh, this will be new for some of you who are newer to our church and for others, a reminder maybe to get uh, realigned with the Lord in all of this. But harvestberry.ca, our website, uh, harvestberry.ca slash prayer is a place where you can kind of see some of the things that we do. And um, on Friday, Weekend Warriors went out as it does every week. And uh, on there is just a list of, of prayer requests and things we're seeking God for with regard to uh, worship and the names of worship team members are there. So you can pray by name for them and a little synopsis of the message and pray for uh, what's happening right now and uh, what's gonna happen in Harvest Kids and then all of our other teams that are participating in the weekend and helping to make this happen, just praying for all of those. And if you wanna get that, you can subscribe to that and pray over the weekend for the weekend. 
And then our Connect folder prayer team, you can sign up for this. And uh, as those folders pass through the aisles, and as is true uh, every weekend, somewhere between 140 and 170 prayer requests will come in. And I want to tell you with great confidence that all of those requests are prayed for multiple times during the week. We take those to the Lord. So we take that very seriously. And there are more than 100 people already who receive uh, that list. It's taken off of the Connect folders, and it's uh, uh, word processed and then emailed mailed out to people. And so if you want to be part of praying for the body and all these requests that come in, uh, you can be interceding for one another in that way. We have a pre-service prayer time, uh, uh, prayer team that gathers and you can sign up to be part of that as well. People who actually gather on site to walk through the building and pray uh, before the weekend service is happening. And then uh, Rogers already mentioned earlier, the family prayer night coming up a week and a half from now on Wednesday, May 4th. And um, uh, come bring your family to that and uh, begin to teach your children how to pray, how to pray together and intercede before the Lord and get aligned with him. And we just believe that bold endeavors for God require bold prayers to God. We believe that. And if you're determined to have God do great things through you, then you're gonna wanna get aligned with what uh, he is doing. Sound good? All right, that's two of three. Ready for the last one? (laughs) It's like you don't know who I am. (laughs) All right, number three. Let's take a look at this. Take a personal responsibility to see things happen. See, you're not really a determined person unless you're determined to do something about what has been put right in front of you. I mean, I know, I know we don't like to ask the question, but when a need gets put right in front of you, do you ever ask yourself the question, hmm, I wonder why God put this need right in front of me. You don't want to ask that question, do you? I mean, you might have a heart of compassion for the need. I really feel for this person. And you might even say, I'll, I'll pray for them. But then we, we can fail so completely if we don't take the next step to ask the question, why did this need get put in front of me? Should I be taking personal responsibility to see things happen? Now notice how this prayer, how this chapter really concludes. Verse 11, Nehemiah prays, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He's talking about himself. And to the prayer of your servants, anyone else who's praying about this, who delight to fear your name. And notice what he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Then he says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. It's a pretty specific role. Come to that in a moment. But I I don't know really precisely. I suspect that Nehemiah's question to his brother who was coming back from Judah, I suspect his question was genuine. He asked very specific questions about the people, about the state of the land, and about Jerusalem in particular. So it sounds like he really cared. But maybe, maybe the question was just kind of one of those, hey, how you doing? You know how you ask people how they're doing? You don't really care? Why, like, is that nervous laughter? Because you know you do it, right? Hey, how you doing, right? And they start to answer, and you're like, yeah, I I don't don't really care. Because you're already walking away. I do this all the time. I'm like the worst for that. So I'm just really preaching to myself right now. So 
So maybe it was that kind of question. Hey, how, how were things? How was the trip to Judah? How are things in Jerusalem? You know, and they come back and they start to tell him. Ah. But no, he really cared. He really cared. And he really prayed. And then he really sought to do something himself about it. When he prays, give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? He says, next, I was a cupbearer to the king. He's already all these months and through prayer and getting aligned and feeling compassion, he's already thinking up a plan. And the plan includes him doing something about it. And the fact that he was cupbearer to the king is not insignificant in the least. Because he's connected to power. The, the cupbearer to the king, by the way, arguably, arguably the most trusted person in the court. Why? Well, because there was so much threat of poison being put in a cup, of taking the king's life, of palace intrigues and, and the shifting of power, that the cupbearer was literally the person who had to be the most trusted lest he bring poison to the king and he be assassinated. And he was a very trusted individual, like that close to the king. Nehemiah could be excused, by the way, at this point, and, and sometimes we do this. I'm not positioned. I'm not in a place to help. I, I don't think I can do anything. Nehemiah had a very good job. I mean, it was a really good place. Why would he risk all of that? He had a good job, lots of food, good clothing, comfortable, secure, safe. Next to the king, how many people get to do that? Highly respected in his role and highly trusted. So many of us would just like somebody to trust us. And he's got that from the most powerful man in the empire. So why would he risk all of that to bring his concerns about this minor people, that's the way the Persians saw them, why would he risk all of that to go before the king? And yet that's what's on his heart to do. He's willing to put it all on the line. But he could have been excused for not wanting to throw all that away. He could have expected others to step up. Why would I put away everything that I've got? He could have had the concern but not act himself, but there can be no doubt that the way this prayer ends, Nehemiah had something on his heart and mind to do. He was gonna do something himself about the trouble and shame of the people. He, in fact, intended to lead the people, to leave the comfort of Susa and the palace, to go to a place that was broken down and in ruins. He took personal responsibility, and it's easy to think that someone else will always be the ones to care for that person. Somebody else will care for that person. Somebody else will, will meet that need. Someone else will support the ministry financially. There's a lot of people here. I'll leave that for someone else. Someone else will teach that class or lead that team. Someone else will pay for the building and the renovation. You know, it's a, it's a sad thing, but we're going to go into this capital campaign in the fall to raise the money to renovate uh, the building that we've, um, we're under contract to purchase. And, and um, you, you start to look at the statistics of capital campaigns in churches, and you realize that um, fewer people in most churches, in the average church, fewer people participate than, than, than don't participate. It, it, less than half the people in a church 
who are committed to it, who are members, who are coming week by week, who are using all the ministries, less than half, in most churches, less than half participate in a major capital campaign. That's a little distressing to me. And, and I, I really think knowing this church and knowing some other things about you, that, I, that it's just not going to be that way here. That we're going to kind of push against all the trends and, and, and something extraordinary is going to happen among uh, these people. I think we've been waiting for it so long and I think there's just something going on in our church that we're going to be different than that. I believe that because I believe you want to take a personal responsibility for all of this. And so I think it'd just be really great for us to eradicate the thought that we might be uh, tempted to have uh, that uh, what, what, what could I possibly do? What could I possibly do? Well, there's lots that you can do. Every one of us playing our part in all of this. And the reason why I think that it could be uh, different for us is um, I already know this about you, that uh, more than seven out of 10 of you participate in serving in some kind of role here at Harvest. Seven out of 10. That's pretty impressive by comparison to a lot of other places. You're engaged in serving one another. I know we could do a little bit better and it's a good time to remind you about our 5,000 hours project and we've kind of let that slow down a little bit. And it would be great for us to kind of get back at that and the impact that we want to make on our community. You're already giving well this year, actually in a pretty extraordinary way. And I've reported on that a couple of weeks ago and told you that in the first quarter of the year, we're doing better than we've ever done. And that we're making budget and that that's pretty impressive. But since I told you that, we've had two weeks that are a little bit softer. And so I'm like, well, first of all, I don't want to report that to you anymore. But second of all, I'm not sure why the last two weeks were a little softer. Was it that some people thought, oh, you know what, they're doing okay now and I don't need to give as much and things are a little tight at home and maybe I don't need to be as faithful? Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth and God has so much in front of us this year and the challenges in front of us over the next uh, several years are greater than we can even imagine. And there's so much more, would you agree? There's so much more we could do in this community than what we're already doing. And so we need to continue to be faithful uh, with all of that. And and I love this. Um, Some of you, and again, this is a reason why I think it's going to be different here. Some of you have already taken it upon yourself. Now, again, our major capital campaign is going to happen in the fall. We haven't even begun to take pledges yet or talk about any of that, uh, except to say that it's going to happen. And yet some of you are already giving toward the Seven George Street Project. Some of you are giving regularly every week. And I'm talking about thousands of dollars coming in every single week. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Amen. And... um, You have no idea how encouraging that is to the elders as we're making very challenging decisions these days. But to know that you're already stepping up, even when we haven't precisely asked for it, is telling me that there's a heart to take responsibility and to allow God to do something great through all of our lives. You're telling us that you're determined to get this done. And we're encouraged and blessed by that. It's the best spirit of Nehemiah. It's what Jesus modeled for us. And we're excited that God is allowing this to happen so that we can fulfill our our mission here in this city and glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in so doing. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we are um, grateful again for the... um, the clarity of your word. And we're grateful for your servant, Nehemiah. 
for the heart that he shows us, for the determination to do something great for you, to allow you to do something great uh, through him. And God, we know that that's what happens when your servants get aligned with you and with your will and with the mission that you've entrusted to us in this world. And so God, continue to work in us to make us the church, to make us the people that you want us to be so that we might fulfill the mission that you intend us to fulfill. And this we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to spend some time now around the Lord's table. And I'm going to ask the servers to come up and uh, position themselves uh, now uh, to serve you the table. In Luke chapter 9, we've been talking about determination, focus. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, it's recorded in the gospel that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knew that a time was coming for him to leave. And when he set his face toward Jerusalem, it communicates, the word actually communicates determination. He was determined to go to a city where he was no longer welcomed into, really into the heart of the fire. And he knew going there, it was gonna mean the giving of his life. But after all, that was his entire mission. Jesus gave his life for us. And the night before he was betrayed, he met with his disciples and he shared this meal with him, with them. The bread, symbolic of his body given for us, pinned to the cross. And the blood shed, his perfect blood, sinless, shed for the complete remission of our sins. And he gave us this table so we would remember and as we remember it together right now, as we celebrate it together, let's think about that determination Christ had. Let's be just as determined as his followers to fulfill our missions in this world. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you love him as best you're able, you're walking with him, you're welcome to take part in this. You don't need to be a member of our church. And in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come out from where you are. If you're in these two sections, come out to this middle aisle. You don't need to all rush at once, but come down this aisle. You'll be served over here to my right, and then follow along back the wall and come back into your seats. And the same for these two sections. Come down this aisle, and uh, you'll be served here and go around to the back and back to your seats. In each of the trays are two cups stacked together. The bottom one has the bread in it, and the top one has the juice. Take it back to your seat. Let the worship team sing over you. It's a powerful song. Pray, worship. When everyone's been served and we're all set, we'll take it together and celebrate all that the Lord has done with great gratitude in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.